Welcome back once again to the sixth episode of this Dynasty Fantasy Football Show. As always, I'm your host, CJ Friel, and on today's show, the main focus will be on J.J. McCarthy and the quarterback position as a whole around the NFL heading into the 2024 draft. Also on today's show, I cover Javon Baker, the wide receiver out of Central Florida, and a few other players who have not yet been discussed on this show. Finally, at the end of today's show, I'm going to do what I've so far rarely done and talk about some players at the NFL level, specifically trying to key on a pattern I've noticed recently of players who have been consistently overrated the last two years by fantasy managers going into the offseason. But before I get into any of that, this is probably going to be the last show I do, which is not searchable on Spotify or iTunes or the Apple Podcast app or whatever you call it, or a couple other major podcasts as well. The big problem there obviously being that I haven't actually named the show yet or put in any logos or things together yet, but I do expect to have at least a prototype put together so that this can be more easily found on those apps. It's not a big following so far, but it's enough that I do want it to start becoming more accessible to people, particularly as the product has started to get a little bit more polished compared to you know the early episodes where maybe the audio quality was worse or something else but so on that note i just wanted to thank you for joining me and listeners of the show should also feel free to reach out and give any suggestions for names or a direction to go with names uh but back to the show preview i did want to also mention that i've said this a few times but i am actually a little bit more of a college football fanatic than your standard dynasty football guy who i think focuses a lot more on the nfl as their kind of you know their major thing and i've mentioned I, I, I don't want to completely backtrack from when I said I wasn't going to bring up 2025 prospects earlier, or at least before the draft cycle ended, but I'm going to bring up 2025 prospects today to contextualize a, a conversation around J.J. McCarthy, not really to talk about them themselves. I will talk about them themselves. I'm also saying this now because I do understand that talking about futures is kind of a controversial subject in and of itself. I think some people don't like to talk about futures or to think about things that far in advance. And I guess my point just here is that the NFL teams have to operate on the information they have. And a lot of this information is objective analytical, and it's the same objective analytical numbers that they have. I mean, they might have different numbers. They might have better numbers on top of it, but chances are the fact that there isn't a Bryce Young, a CJ Stroud, a Caleb Williams, or a Drake May by most people's opinion in the Next upcoming class is not like there's probably not somebody that the NFL is eyeballing and saying like no this guy's a hundred percent going to be one of those guys and we're just missing out on them and so that's generally the point I'm making with the 2025 class if you want to skip that whole section and just listen to that what I just said go ahead it's only a few minutes but I will break down in small details some of the 2025 quarterbacks to look out for in this upcoming college football season as a way to contextualize you know what teams might not be looking forward to in this next year because the 2025 class might not be as good as the last couple that we have seen. So with that said, it's time to get into JJ McCarthy and the situation surrounding the quarterback position at the NFL level. There have been a lot of questions recently about J.J. McCarthy's draft stock. There's been a lot of hype. There's been a lot of pushing him up mock drafts and stuff. And so I wanted to discuss a bit on this show what I believe to be hype, what I believe to be substance, and theoretically where he would place on my big board in Superflex Dynasty formats at various points in the draft. Now, before I get into any of this, I wanted to kind of discuss the quarterback marketplace as a whole or kind of like a kind of like a state of the union of the quarterback position at the NFL level at this point, because I think it's important to put into context 
how teams are, might, might be approaching this 2024 draft. To begin, I have four quarterbacks listed at 36 or older going into next season at Matt Stafford, Kirk Cousins, Russell Wilson, and Aaron Rodgers. It's important to note that two of those players are also coming off of torn Achilles. I have two more quarterbacks at 33 or higher in Derek Carr and Geno Smith. And then there are four of the six quarterbacks drafted in the first round between 2021 and 2022, where all four might be out of a job as soon as the beginning of next year in Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, and Kenny Pickett. Outside of those 10 quarterbacks, there are 21 quarterbacks who are ranked higher than Aiden O'Connell on keep trade cut. And that includes a number of quarterbacks who are still unlikely to be long-term starters, or at least you don't have a ton of confidence in being long-term starters like Justin Fields, Bryce Young, Will Levis and Daniel Jones. This also includes Baker Mayfield, as well as Deshaun Watson, who comes with his own set of problems. On top of this, there are substantial questions about the 2025 quarterback class. Now, to begin, there's going to be a lot of small things mentioned about these quarterbacks really quickly because I don't want to get too deep into it. So just know that there are longer conversations with all these things. So if you disagree, I understand and I don't have time to defend it in this episode. I just want to give a general state of this quarterback class because it's important to note that between 2023 and 2024, at this point, Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Caleb Williams, and Drake May in their respective years were already household names. And we can define that by a number of different ways, but each of those players was at least a top 10 Heisman finalist in their by their sophomore year or in their sophomore year. Bryce Young and Caleb Williams won the award and Stroud and May both received enough votes to finish in the top 10. It's also important to note that youth production is very important. While this class does have a Jaden Daniels and it might also have Bo Nix and potentially Michael Penix Jr. all going in the first round, Early declares have made up the last seven quarterbacks taken in the top 11. So teams still put a priority as much as they can on early declares. And from a profiling perspective, we should be expecting early declares from a year out to be the quarterbacks we're focusing on the most. The problem is when we get into the early declare potentials for 2025, there's a lot of issues. Penn State's Drew Aller was the highly rated prototype, but he completed under 60% of his passes and completed under 45% of his passes against Michigan and Ohio State. Cade Klubnick never really had as good of tools as Drew Aller, and he had a 6.3 yards per attempt and a 21-12 touchdown to INT so far. So those aren't really the kind of numbers, Cade Klubnick from Clemson, that you really need to see. Uh, Connor Wegman from Texas A&M is moving into my quarterback one uh, in terms of the true juniors by almost by default. And that's basically because he got hurt in 2023 and didn't play at all. And, you know, I don't mean for that to sound so bleak, but he, he probably would. And because of how low his total games played is at this stage of his career, I would also say that the smart money is that he is not a 2025 quarterback prospect. Obviously that can happen if he has a great year, a team's going to want him to come out, but teams also want quarterbacks in particular to still get like two full years, most often of starting if they can. And unless Connor Wegman blows the doors off because he is still a young prospect, I would imagine that he goes back for a fourth year at Texas A&M. And I think that is the most likely outcome at this point. The next highest ranked player would be someone like Noah Fafita. And to be honest, I haven't done the due diligence in a Noah Fafita yet, but I have not seen anybody talk about him like a first round pick. And that usually says something alone. And then in terms of the non-early declares, you know, 
you do have a couple of good intriguing guys, but you know, Shadur Sanders had a great start, but he fell off after they went from the Veer and shoot offense. The Veer and shoot offense is the same one that Hendon Hooker used in Tennessee. And then it's also important to note that while he is only a true senior, he must have started school late or, or else he's not a true senior. And all just all the numbers I've seen are wrong or the data I've seen is wrong because according to his age, which I do assume is probably more accurate than most prospects because Shadur Sanders is a significantly bigger celebrity than almost any prospect in college football. His age would be much closer to Jaden Daniels. He's about like next year. He'll be respectively about eight weeks younger than Jaden Daniels is for this class. So Shadur Sanders is a pretty old quarterback prospect for being a, a senior. And then again, he fell off after that veer and shoot system. Uh, the offensive coordinator this year is going to be Pat Shermer. Yes, that Pat Shermer. I don't know if that's a great thing for the college production. Carson Beck, good arm, great size. He might be trending towards being my quarterback, one of the class overall, but he just hasn't shown that much. It's still from a limited number of games and he's not the most mobile quarterback quarterback and then Quinn Ewers talked about it in the Mitchell thing from Texas I really think that Steve Sarkeesian offense is very paint by numbers and he more than maybe any other quarterback in this in this class operates a very you know he's very much a system quarterback to me right now maybe he grows out of it but you know the point is that while as the last two years we've been able to look ahead and say wow we're really excited what's coming next you know we can debate whether people were more excited with Caleb Williams in May than Young and Stroud, which I believe they were. But the point is that there were quarterbacks that people were looking forward to significantly the last two years who had both already put up top 10 Heisman seasons, and those do not exist in this class. So you don't have that many quarterbacks. You have a lot of aging out quarterbacks. The 2025 class is not looking that great. The bottom line is all of this is going to come together to make J.J. McCarthy at the very least and probably Knicks and probably even Penix fly up the board. And it wouldn't honestly surprise me if Spencer Rattler flew up the board too. Not necessarily saying first round, but there has been the buzz on Spencer Rattler has also been consistent. This is kind of going to tie me into the J.J. McCarthy thing. But I watch more college football than NFL football. And I can tell you that people who are saying that the McCarthy and the Spencer Rattler buzz is coming out of nowhere were not paying attention to the same sources I was listening to. Because mid-season, I was hearing I was hearing that. You know, it wasn't that I was hearing, oh my gosh, McCarthy's the greatest quarterback ever. Oh my gosh, Spencer Rattler, he's the greatest quarterback ever. I was hearing the NFL is higher on these guys than a lot of people think. That's just generally what I heard from people probably like Brugler, you know, probably like just anybody else that I was able to key in on that I believe have sharp lists in this field. And so I do think on one end you have a horrible, you know, quarterback hype is always going to be a thing. So a lot of people might think, well, quarterback hype is quarterback hype, but I think it's going to be different because I truly do believe that we saw a glimpse of this in 2021 and I don't think that the aging out situation was as bad in 2021 as it is now. And so, you know, that was the draft where we had five quarterbacks go by the top 15 picks. And so, you know, the quarterback premium, I think, is going to be at an all time high in the draft this year. And that's why someone who I myself, I say in a vacuum, I am comfortable with taking JJ McCarthy 14, probably between 20 and 25, pick 20 and 25. That's why I said in the first show. 
but I understand why he's going in the top 10 because of this, this position in this marketplace and what he does have from an upside perspective, right? So let's get into JJ McCarthy himself. All right. 21 in late January, just turned 21 listed at six foot three, 202 pounds. The 202 pounds is the first thing to talk about just because he is a very lean guy. And that's going to come into the, you know, how do you look at age? Is he a projectable frame guy or is he probably just a lean guy? Because, you know, Jaden Daniels, the whole, the whole selling point that I discussed in his profile is just the idea that he did change fundamentally over the five years he was in college from a 170 pound skinny guy who was kind of quick to a 205 pound. Yes, he's lean, but much more explosive athlete. And I'm not necessarily saying that JJ McCarthy is going to, you know, become an explosive rusher, but he definitely could add some weight still that you would not necessarily project on someone, you know, if he was the age of Daniels, Nix or Penix to continue to add that weight. In 29 games of the la- in the last two years, he had 44 touchdowns, nine interceptions, uh, and he is not just young. But I think the the biggest thing is, you know, I talk about the age. A lot of people talk about the age. The age is very important to point out to contextualize things. But it's not the fact that he is young. It is the fact that he is young and got a lot better from 2022 when he was 19 to 2023 when he was 20, right? So some of those improvements, 64.6 completion to 72.3% completion, about a jump of 8%. 8.4 yards per attempt to 9 yards per attempt. Not a huge jump, but a jump. 75.7% passing grade to an 87.9 passing grade. 87.9 is under the ideal I look for for a peak season. So that's crucial, and that's part of the reason why, for me, J.J. McCarthy is in that 2025 pick range from a grading perspective. But it's still a huge jump from the 75 range to the high 80s. Then this is actually my favorite number. Uh, I used it a few times. I used it in one of the, the pieces that I wrote up during the year about why J.J. McCarthy's stock was improving. And with, without play action in 2022, and I got this I got this tip off from Bud Elliott of the Cover 3 podcast, without pit play action in 2022, J.J. McCarthy completed 62.6% of his passes at 6.6 yards per attempt and a 12-4 touchdown to INT. That is a 62.3 PFF grade. In 2023, he completed 71% of his no play action passes, an increase of 8.4%, for 8.2 yards per attempt, an increase of 1.6, 16 touchdowns, four more, three interceptions, one less, and an 84.9 PFF passing grade, a jump up of 22. So that's without the aid of play action, at least according to PFF. And so why is he making these progressions and do you expect to make more, I guess, is going to be the next natural question that comes up. And I think a couple of things to note from a traits perspective, some of the building block traits that I think a lot of people are looking for more and more are things like pressure to sack and avoiding turnovers, right? They're not other than the pure physical things like the arm talent, which JJ does have in terms of having a high velocity arm, the pressure to sack. And avoiding turnovers with that arm talent and the mobility that he has. Those are the perfect four real building blocks that you want in a prospect. Now, to be clear, whether he becomes a good quarterback or not is more likely going to come down to how well he reads a field. But the development and the ability to read the field is something that 
most prospects have to go to and improve at because the level that they've done it at their whole lives is nothing near the level that they're going to have to do it at at the NFL level. So having these four essential building blocks is a huge thing for J.J. McCarthy. He also had a very good relationship with his quarterback coach, Kirk Campbell. This was something that was discussed a lot in the offseason that he developed a lot his footwork in the offseason and a lot of people thought that he was going to make a leap it was something I had made a note of I obviously didn't believe it I mean I didn't like take him in like a Debbie league that I'm in that I could have gotten him extremely cheap because people were out on him but I did make a note of it and when he started making those improvements and he started showing a little bit better mechanically and he you know he's incredible at being accurate on the run too which is you know part of that staying tight mechanically You know, I I do take note that that was a preseason narrative that got uh, put out a lot. And then I've said this a few times in a few different platforms, but I think J.J. McCarthy is going to have the highest intangible score for teams. And this is purely my own speculative read from someone who just watches a lot of college football and listens to how everybody talks about everybody else. But I think J.J. McCarthy has a really nice blend of being someone that coaches like because he is going to be disciplined in the right ways, but also somebody that coaches like because he's going to have a little bit of the flair. And so this is going to be one of the dumbest examples I ever use in this podcast. I promise this is going to be one of the dumbest examples I ever use in this podcast. But I remember that little video after the national championship that went viral when he tossed the, the trophy that could very easily break just like a foot and a half to his teammate. And it's just like, am I silly for saying this myself? Yes. I feel silly for saying this, but that's the kind of like, it feels a little risky, but is it really like, okay, if he shatters a trophy, it's going to go viral. He's going to be embarrassed, but who cares? You know, it's like, it's not really risky, you know? And I think that's kind of how I define JJ McCarthy's personality in the way that I think teams will like it is that there's something about it that feels a little risky, but all of the risk feels very well tamed. And I think compared to Caleb Williams, who might be too much one way for some people and Drake may, who might be too much the other way for some people, you know, I do think all these players are going to score very well intangibly. That is not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying anybody's going to be poor, but if you were to get honest opinions from each coach on who they like the most, I think your highest person is going to be JJ McCarthy in this class. And so when you add that to the building blocks, that kind of, again, spells, kind of why this progression might be happening. And then I kind of started getting into it already, but the traits, good size, but lean, good mobility. And it's the change of direction, not necessarily the long speed. I've heard a lot of different projection on what his 40 is going to be. I don't know what it's going to be exactly, but I do know that I don't care as much about what his 40 is going to be because I don't necessarily think that he, like he doesn't move like Daniel Jones. Like Daniel Jones can run a fast 40, but he has to get going downhill to have any chance of it. Whereas JJ just really moves side to side in the way that like like for example anytime you run the option uh like the stand the old school option when the quarterback has a chance to be that you know bc whatever gap runner uh you know i would never run that with daniel jones i would run that with jj mccarthy even if jj mccarthy doesn't run as fast as daniel jones because i think he can you know get into those lanes and you know 
duck in or duck out and, and do those things that solid rushers do. Again, the, the leanness might be a concern there, but I do really like the change of direction in his mobility. He has the good high velocity arm and again, young to grow into the arm and the body. So I guess this is the podcast where I'm finally starting to reference the shows I listen to, but I listened to uh, Connor Rogers recently on the PFF, the stock exchange show that PFF does. And he was talking about how he talked to a area scout about Jared Goff and the guy basically said if you don't think the arm strength looks as good as you were expecting it to just remember he's really young and when a quarterback is 20 maybe even 21 you expect it to get a little better we have never seen JJ McCarthy play at an age older than say 20 years 11 months maybe something around there but so you know that does at least create that is the thing that age does right age has nothing to do with longevity i do not care that jj mccarthy could theoretically be under 35 for three more years than michael Penix could be under 35 but that could be a significant difference in the age of jj mccarthy and then his throw on the run accuracy is really underrated i mentioned this a little bit ago but he there's a couple stats i've seen going around twitter i don't know what the exact parameters are but they rate him as the highest you know accurate or accurate quarterback in terms of completion percentage, which isn't really accuracy, but the highest completion percentage quarterback on throws on the run. And so that is kind of significant to show that, that trait in kind of a statistical way. And then just generally he shows the ability to flash accurate passes into tight windows with that high velocity arm. So ultimately the question comes down to where would he be ranked in theoretical circumstances in a super flex dynasty league? And I do think that after the combine, when I get some updated mock drafts from some of the sources I look at that I think are waiting until the combine maybe to make new mock drafts, I think I might do a post combine show where I, you know, where I take NFL mock draft ADP and I create my big board for fantasy using that ADP. I think that's going to be something I do on a show shortly after the combine. But in terms of J.J. McCarthy, if J.J. McCarthy, who I personally rank as having a first-round grade, even if it isn't the same kind of first-round grade I give on the other three quarterbacks, if he were to go in the top 15 or 20 picks, I would be very comfortable taking him around the 7th or 8th pick in a Superflex Dynasty League. He would clearly be over Brock Bowers, which I know will be controversial, but with the tight end situation and the combination of the draft capital and my personal grade on J.J. McCarthy, he would be over Brock Bowers, which would make him the most likely candidate to be the 107 in this circumstance. So I'm not 100% confident that's going to happen, obviously, and I don't know if I would put him at the seventh spot on my big board as of today, but if J.J. McCarthy is drafted in the top 15 picks, maybe even in the top 20, he will be the number seven pick most likely on my board without any other significant changes. And that is all I have on Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy. Just 30 seconds before I get back into the show, I don't have anything to ask anybody listening today except for just the idea that if you do listen to podcasts, consider looking out for this one next week on at least the major podcasting apps and give it a shot. I've kept it pretty low key so far, but I would enjoy reaching a larger audience, so any part you can play in that is appreciated. Back to Javon Baker and the rest of the show. Up next, I'm going to discuss a few players that I have not profiled very much at all and that's a very rare group at this point because I've profiled quite a few players on this show at least 
like in a ranking show. So to be clear, there's three players I'm going to touch on here, but two of them I'm going to talk about very, very briefly. So the first one I'm going to profile, the second two are going to be more like just touching base on players that I haven't talked about before. So Javon Baker, the wide receiver out of Central Florida, seems to be a pretty trendy and popular sleeper name right now. He's a name I get questions about a lot. I've seen him pop up in Mel Kuyper's videos. Uh, and it's just, you know, you can see it because he's got so many classic traits physically that you look for in a wide receiver. He's not necessarily, you know, Brian Thomas Jr. Like he's not someone who hits the 90th percentile on these things, but six foot one, three eighths inch, 208 pounds, 31 and five eighths inch arms. Those are all official verified, at least in terms of senior bowl. And he was also a former Alabama recruit. So he had a very big, you know, prospect profile, at least at a very young age. Baker is also 22 years, six months as of September 1st, according to my age list. And he is a true senior. Now, the biggest thing to note right away with Javon Baker is that he has extremely poor early college production. Well, what a player does at ages 18 and 19 may not seem very important. It has actually proven to be extremely important to produce by your second year and even in some degree by your first year to have a good chance of success in the future. Now, to be clear, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to, you know, refuse to evaluate a player for the rest of his life just because he didn't get to certain thresholds at 18 or 19. But it is important to note that historically, players that don't get to those thresholds by 18 or 19 would not actually have been a bad thing for you to discount. It's also worth noting that transferring down or transferring to a program that is far below the level, no offense to Central Florida, of the program that you're currently at is also another kind of nail in a coffin for most prospects. Because the thing that people won't think about if they don't you know, follow transfer portals too closely is that coaches talk, right? So take Jamison Williams. Jamison Williams had almost no production in two years at Ohio State. But Alabama is the team that wanted him. Jamison Williams didn't transfer down. He transferred to the side because he went to Alabama from Ohio State. But when a player at Alabama who can't see the field goes to Central Florida, I believe his two options were Kentucky or Central Florida. Those are like, you know, three out of five star programs, right? I mean, I love the position that Central Florida is in for the future of, of this sport. And if there was one team that I could buy at a stock price right now, it might be Central Florida. But compared to Alabama, you're transferring down. And so I don't mean to be ultra negative on Baker and it didn't I didn't actually mean for it to sound that way I'm just handling it chronologically and I think that kind of sells how Baker's career has gone so far because chronologically it was basically a career where he had both feet in the grave with a little bit of dirt on him now year three at Central Florida, Central Florida is playing in the American Athletic Conference this year, so it's not a Power 5 conference. He has a little under 800 yards over 14 games. He has 200-yard games against SMU and the Naval Academy, so better, but nowhere near what you would consider good for just a general third-year player, right? I mean, that was the year that he could have jumped to the NFL from, and the only two teams he beat up were SMU and Navy. And so started in the fourth year and at least was better, but was still fairly slow. You know, he had 508 yards and five touchdowns in seven games. Now that's, I'm not going to tell you that those are bad numbers by any means, but if I'm comparing, if I'm looking for a prospect to be breaking out in his fourth year, who has 
so far shown me very little signs of being that kind of guy. 500 yards in seven games in the college, you know, even now that they're in the Big 12, that's not going to cut it. And then it's also worth noting that his drop rate was very, very high in 2022 and for, I believe, the first five or so games in 2023. So that's just, you know, just something to note in that sample. And then afterward, in those last five games, Baker absolutely tore it up. Five games, 23 receptions, 554 yards, six touchdowns, a huge bowl game appearance. Now, that kind of is kind of getting tricky because bowl games are kind of getting tricky. It's also worth noting, though, the, the whole reason I brought up the drop thing is he had one drop down his last eight games, which was a significant change to his his drop percentage because his drop percentage from 2022 to those first five games in 2023 was significantly bad like it was probably like in the 14 ish percent range and like anything north of double digits is an automatic red flag for me and 14 is like really really high and in terms of a raw reception count it is worth noting that in four of the five games he hit four 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 and two receptions that's not a super high volume in terms of just a, a volume of targets or anything of that capacity but it's important to note you know was this something clicking for a guy who had a very very high high school draft or high school profile or is this kind of just a flash in the pan and kind of some some of the just the stuff that happens at the wide receiver position so raw proportional data is going to be very nice to Javon Baker in terms of peak season right but I want to get into this a little bit uh, and unfortunately, I wish I would have talked about this before profiling Baker, and I almost talked about it on the last show, and I, I ended up taking it out. But when it comes to proportional statistics, the proportional statistics I use that take receiving yards out of team receiving yards, the one skew that I have found in the data is when a team is very, very run heavy. Because by being run heavy, they drastically limit the number of receiving yards in the denominator in proportional receiving yards, but they also alleviate the pressure on that wide receiver by running the ball so much. The biggest example of a player in the last couple of years who was drafted highly, did incredibly well in proportional receiving yards, but also had this clear skew in the data was Traylon Burks. In fact, it was basically in analyzing Traylon Burks and not really feeling like the number represented what he was doing on the field that I kind of put this in my notes as being a skew. So with that said, the raw proportional production for Javon Baker is over 35%, 35.2. My goal range for prospects is right around 30 to 33 at a peak season. So 35.2% is very, very good. But again, Central Florida ran the ball over 40 times a game. That might have included sacks, but even if you knock that down a couple, that's still a ton of carries. And one of the ways that you can see this take shape is one of the games that I watched was the, I believe, Texas Tech game, which was down the end of the season. And he would have had like three receptions for 30 yards in the game. But they had a play where both the safety and the corner, I don't know if it was a miscommunication, but the safety and the corner on his side of the field blitzed. And he just took three steps down the sideline and was like, uh, hey, pass it to me, guys. And he had a 70-yard touchdown where he just, I mean, he, he ran because he's got the speed and he didn't want to get caught. But, I mean, a lot of athletes could have made that one because it was just that easy. And I think those are the kind of things that get created 
in skews like this because or in the in the skew with proportional yards because with so few team receiving yards that 70 yard play is huge but that's that's just a bust like he didn't really even do that much on the play so you know it's it's good for his numbers but you know those are the kind of things where someone's breaking out very late in the fourth year and has all these negatives in their first two years that I'm kind of looking for and they kind of scare me a little bit so you know the bottom line with Javon Baker for me is that there are three big picture areas I want to look at with Javon Baker Number one, the athleticism, and that is very good, and there's no doubt about it. Number two, the proportional production at its peak is very great. And so from one standpoint, you can't really say that he could have done much more than that. And so you have to give him credit for that. But you don't want to give him the full credit of something like a 35% because that has more to do with the rushing offense, in my opinion. And then number three, the early production is a substantial red flag combined with the Alabama career, very few uh, receiving yards and any kind of stats at all. Those first two years at Alabama and then did not transfer to a program that would suggest that he had, you know, the kind of marketplace that future NFL players transferring with three years of eligibility left you know, typically go to, right? Again, no offense, but that's just the truth about where program, you know, who, what programs have first dibs, right? You want the players who go to the programs that have first dibs. That's why, you know, players like Isaiah Bond and Trevor Etienne looking towards 2025 have my interest because when they transferred, they went to Georgia and Texas. So I will cover this a bit more next week in tiers, but Baker is firmly out of my big tier, which is my top 12 wide receivers. He's probably exactly where he was during the wide receiver 8 to 15 show, which is around honorable mention number one for me, which is, you know, wide receiver 16 around the likes of Brendan Rice, Xavier Leggett, and Jalen McMillan. And so that's all I have on Javon Baker. I did have two other players kind of that I haven't talked about yet that I want to talk about, but nowhere near the depth of that. The first one being the Monmouth FCS running back, Jaden Sheridan. A couple times I say things like, I watch a lot of college football. That does nothing for the FCS. I did know who Andre Yoshivas was, but that was more because I read a betting tip on a Harvard-Princeton game. But anyway, Jaden Sheardin from Monmouth. I really liked what I saw from him on tape in terms of the first step quickness. And it's important to note that compared to Dylan Lowby, something that sticks out right away is that even though, you know, Sheridan did not transfer up after his second year, which you would have really liked to see him do. He did only spend three years in college. He is an early declare. So that's a big thing, you know, to note that even though he is coming from a lower level, he's not going to, you know, when he's going to a higher level, he's not stopping at the FBS on the way. He's going straight to the NFL. Maybe that just says something about who he is. You know, Keaton Mitchell was a guy who surprised me to come out and then get undrafted. But maybe that also says something about how the NFL perceives him. Now, the big difference between Jaden Sheridan and Dylan Lowby and why I didn't consider him for a running back 10 spot is because Jaden Sheridan is 5'7 and about 190 pounds as of the official Shrine Bowl weigh-in. So Sheridan is a very undersized bat coming for the FCS. So even though he's put up incredible numbers and is this early declare and has some of those positive indicators, you know, I just saw him on a couple sleeper lists, so I, I didn't want to keep ignoring him. But Jaden Sheridan is not a candidate in terms of outside of being an honorable mention for being a top 10 running back for me right now. And then just another name I've seen come up. I really have almost nothing to add to this player, but uh, Jaquan Jackson out of Tulane. Jackson is a player that I'm getting seeing get a lot of buzz, but that's one that's just so hard. You know, there are certain profiles that, like A.D. Mitchell, right, where the, the production is not good. 
historically, but he's done enough from like a, just being a good college player since that you're not like completely projecting him out of completely nowhere. But Jaquan Jackson is a player who's played in college for five years and it looked like he might have been breaking out in the first two games of the season when he put up like 200 yards, but he didn't really do much outside of that. So, you know, that's just a name I've also seen come up in a couple things. But uh, again, another player, not really a candidate for a, a high spot for me from what I've seen so far. Maybe I'll change my tune on that. But, you know, just going through a couple more players as we get further into this 2024 draft cycle. And so that's all I have for prospects today. I I haven't done this a lot so far on this show because prospects are my passion, but I do want to go over some NFL observations. And also just for another teaser, next week, uh, one of the two main focuses on the show will be underrated and overrated players on Keep Trade Cut. I haven't completely made the list yet, and I'll cross-check Keep Trade Cut with a couple other sources so that I'm not completely, you know, pulling out terrible numbers and I'll contextualize things, you know. But for this show, I want to talk about something slightly different. It's actually probably more of just a general rule of thumb. And honestly, frankly, I'm just nervous about this one. Uh, Because if I don't phrase it right, I think people will think I'm saying something really controversial, maybe. And I, you know, we don't want to avoid controversy here. That's not my goal. My goal is to just say what I believe about players at all times, no matter what the situation is. But... I want to make sure that what I'm saying is being clear. And sometimes, you know, you're talking about something like an edge or a pattern that you're seeing and it involves a player. And just because that pattern involves a player doesn't necessarily mean you have to throw that player out or that that's what the analysis is suggesting. But by the same time, the analysis might still be worth talking about and looking into and just deciding what we have to make of it. So there is one player who I won't mention until the end of this, who will be apparent maybe at some point for some people who falls under some criteria that we're going to be discussing. And I'll cover it at the end in in very good context about how I feel about that player because nothing's ever black and white. But the first thing I just want to bring up is that I want to talk about this piece I wrote about Nico Collins because the whole point of the piece was that The reason I liked Nico Collins was because during 2022, even though he had Davis Mills and the overall surface stats were bad, the underlying stats at like 1.6 yards per route run or something like that, at least suggested he was a good player. And so taking 10 games of being a good player and then having a couple more on top of it made that sample feel very substantiated. And what I was arguing in that piece largely is that the biggest problem in wide receiver value and how we estimate wide receiver value is that we see things work and we want to believe in them. But the one thing wide receivers have proven to us time and time and time and time again is that there's like three tiers of wide receivers. There's not just two. There's not just guys who can make things work and guys who can't make things work. There's guys who can't make things work, guys who can make things work, and guys who can make things work consistently. And the third group is the one you want, and the third group gets proven with volume. So it's important to note that obviously you're not going to just sell every rising wide receiver stock. That wouldn't be the right idea. And especially when those rising wide receiver stocks are like Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson. But it is important to note that this is a position that we accept on a redraft level is fluky on a week-to-week basis, right? I lost in a league this year in the semifinals because 
of Devontae Adams in the semifinals. And I'm not the only one. And so this is a position where small samples can lead to erratic results. And so with that in mind, it's important to start digging into the real controversial part of this, which is just that one of the biggest market efficiencies in the last few years is wide receivers who are rookies, who miss significant time, who have flashes of brilliance, and then get overrated the very next year. In the last two years, we have Jahan Dotson, Christian Watson, Rashad Bateman, Elijah Moore, and to an extent, Kadarius Toney. I'm not going to include him in most of the data because he wasn't valued highly enough for some of this conversation. But those were players that people were really excited to get on their teams, even pay up for in those off seasons, and were terrified of selling. And, and ultimately, those were maybe the peak points for all of them. Like, we'll get into the specifics of each one. You know, it's easy to say in hindsight, because I've already gotten this when I've talked about how this sample has aligned, that people will say, oh, well, that player is different. This this player, this new player, he's different. He's better. It's like, yeah, but we have to remember that that's what we said about all these guys at that time, too, you know? You know, I, I looked into the keep trade cut evaluations, which, again, it's not a perfect system. It's, in fact, not a great system necessarily. But, you know, just as a general point to look up some values, post year one around January 1st, I had Rashad Bateman around wide receiver 27, Elijah Moore at wide receiver 21, Jahan Dotson at wide receiver 26, and Christian Watson at wide receiver 24. Now today, Christian Watson has retained most of his value because he was injured for a good portion of that second season, but he has dropped to wide receiver 31. Everybody else has dropped significantly, with Jahan Dotson falling falling to wide receiver 43, Elijah Moore to wide receiver 61, and Rashad Bateman to wide receiver 65. It's also important to note there were significant statistics that people latched onto with these players. Rashad Bateman probably had the worst statistics overall, but through his injuries, he ended up having three 80-yard games in his first season. He did have at least a solid 7.6 yards per target. Elijah Moore had over 500 yards and had a crucial 1.75 yards per route run, which was a number that was quoted a lot that offseason, trust me. He had a 141-yard game that was very exciting, that people were very excited about, and in his last six games he had 34 receptions 459 yards and five touchdowns that is a that is a 17 game pace of 96 receptions 1300 yards and 14 touchdowns Jahan Dotson had a lower yards per uh, yards per out run than Elijah Moore but he did have seven touchdowns and 8.6 yards per target and while his his last five per projection wasn't quite as good 21 344 and three over his last five equated out to about 71 receptions 1170 yards and 10 touchdowns as a pace for Jahan Dotson and then Christian Watson's numbers are actually the closest to the player that I'm going to discuss soon, 611 yards, seven touchdowns, 9.3 yards per target, 2.26 yards per route run. Now, again, injury related, but if it was only injury, his value probably isn't dropping from 24 to 31 because I also think that when he was on the field, a lot of people were not super impressed with what they saw. Now, to be clear, I'm not giving up on Christian Watson, it's just important to note that there was a lot of confidence after year one that's not necessarily there as much after year two. And that's kind of the point I'm getting at. And Watson is also the only person to have a better yards per out run than Tank Dell. And, you know, that's 
who is the background of this discussion is Tank Dell in this context. And because I have mentioned Tank Dell now, I do want to talk about Tank Dell because it is fundamental to say that this is not about Tank Dell being a sell, particularly at this point in his market, particularly because he is still considered as injured from the market points I've seen. Now, if his value spikes, depending on him being super healthy and depending on, you know, the situation in your league and who's excited for him, Tank Dell might become a sell for me. Because look, in an ideal world, when you discover something that you feel like is kind of a market inefficiency, you're going to be perfect in picking the right ones and the wrong ones. But more likely, it just kind of suggests to you that at certain value points, only at certain value points, a player might just become a sell. I told you, it's controversy day. So just on to the numbers. The, the big feather in Tank Dell's cap, and the reason he is at least partially different than all these other players, is that he does have the best numbers of the group. Everybody else in this range was between 515 and 611 receiving yards. Tank Dell had 709. Mentioned with Christian Watson, he was also the second highest in yards per route run. But, you know, the CJ, uh, the CJ Stroud thing, it kind of creates this kind of double-edged, you know, concern from a statistical perspective, just because you know, you're very confident in, in the long-term relationship there. And you want to be very, very confident in the long-term relationship there. But you also don't want to make too much about subjective anecdotes, like just, you know, CJ Stroud likes Tank Dell and he's a friend, you know, like things like that. And if you're just looking analytically, as much as you want to have faith in that 2.22 yards per out run, it's also important to note that Noah Brown had a 1.91 yards per out run on similar route numbers. Now, that's not as good, but it's close to an elite figure for Noah Brown. Brevin Jordan had a 1.89 on 156 routes. That's an elite tight end figure. And Nico Collins was up to 3.11, almost a full yard per out run higher on 470 targets. So the numbers are impressive, but there are contexts within the rest of the team that does make a little bit worry there in terms of not necessarily, not wor- worry is probably the wrong word, but just the idea that the numbers could not be as good as we think they are, which is kind of the whole point of this thing. You know, could things not be where we think they are? Because ultimately that's kind of the point of this whole conversation, you know, the bottom line in all this is that this is not about the vacuum. This is about the market. If I were having a conversation in a vacuum and just discussing to like NFL fans about players being good or not being good, I would never say anything bad about Tank Dell because he had an incredible first year. And I would never say anything bad about any player who had an incredible first year. But this isn't a vacuum game. This is a market game. And you have to make moves against the market sometimes. And so while I never doubt a success, you know, an edge isn't about getting every single hit right. And when you cash out on premium players, if you get premium for players, you at least have those assets to, you know, trade down the line. Maybe you can get just a solid wide receiver who's a little older with one of the picks. Maybe you can pocket one of the picks. You know, maybe you can turn tank Dell into like a DK Metcalf and a pick or something like that, especially if the value gets to the point and the high level that it could get. So tank Dell's not a sell for me right now, generally, especially because of the injury dip. And this is not again, specifically about tank Dell. I'm not just saying that to say that or to set up a conversation about tank Dell. I think this is an interesting thing to continue to track because of how fluky the wide receiver position is week to week. 
and because of how exciting the wide receiver position can be week to week, I think this is a market inefficiency that might continue in a general sense over a long period of time that we can take advantage of. If you don't want to do it with Tank Dell, I get that. If you don't want to do it with any player, I get that. But the bottom line is that Tank Dell does fit some of these criteria, even if he's a little higher on some of it. He does fit some of these criteria that outline some of the biggest misses that the fantasy community has had in the last few years. You can say, you know, he didn't have any problem with his size, but neither did Elijah Moore the first year. And it seems to kind of be a little bit of a problem now. And I think Elijah Moore is at least a decent comparison for Tank Dell when you consider how excited people were for Elijah Moore. People will back talk and say that they weren't that excited about Elijah Moore. But I remember conversations that offseason with people who talked about how he was can't miss because of things like his reception perception profile, his yards per route run, his raw ability to route run, how fast and quick he was, and all these other things that are a little bit reminiscent of how we talk about Tank Dell now. So again, in a vacuum, I would never push out onto Tank Dell the end individual but in a market game it's it's you know you're not selling him for free you're selling him for a big profit and that big profit might be this is in my opinion is the safer thing to have at this point when you consider the general volatility of this wide receiver position so if not obvious, since this is also a conversation that goes on, I am firmly on the Nico Collins side. If you were valuing these two as assets, I would rather have Nico Collins because a lot of people want to say Dell was better in this, this, and this game. I don't care if he was 20 yards more than that better. Nico Collins has a substantially bigger sample, which is the reason that I favor him to tank Dell. And so that's really all I have for the show today. I'm also nervous about taking negative sides because I know fundamentally that a lot of people who do this only like to sell hype and positives. And I do believe that there is, you know, a reason for that. But at the end of the day, if you want to have anyone put faith into you, into something like this on a real level, you can't pull your punches because you're afraid of the counterpunch. I like Tank Dell a lot, but there are certain people who are valuing at a level that I'm not willing to do so, which makes him a sell in certain situations. And he's not a buy in any situation most likely right now for me given his market value i also want to say going back to javon baker uh for a second that i didn't really talk about him too much from a skills perspective in terms of things like you know necessarily route running and refinement and i think i talked about the traits from a physical perspective a a little bit but i should have at least mentioned that i think the whole point is that baker is still fairly unrefined which is why it seemed so many of his yards were on those big plays not to say that i don't think he can grow into it which i think was the big selling point of the athleticism he has the athleticism that i think you really believe if he can get a little bit better at these things can really maximize at the next level but i just don't think the refinement is there right now which is why he's down at around the wide receiver 16 spot for me and finally i really don't have anything specific to add on jj mccarthy i probably didn't hit hard enough the reasons why he is not at the top grade, which is just the things everyone else says about kind of the lack of proof of concept and the overall volume numbers that he has played with. The production, the performance at the college football level has been solid, but the volume in it has not been very high level. Even though he's been a starter for a good amount of time, he just hasn't been you know, doing all that much in a good number of games. So, you know, that's something that a lot of people who really, really don't like J.J. McCarthy say about J.J. McCarthy. The difference for me is just that it drags him down from a top graded quarterback to say a top 20 overall pick at the quarterback position to whereas you know some people you know jj mccarthy is one of those 
players that you can just find people that, who don't like him who say just weird things about him. Like I saw somebody the other day on one of the uh, threads I was following on social media mentioned that you know just call him a, a meditating weirdo was just the the lead off to these points of why he didn't like JJ McCarthy. And you know anytime that those are the kind of reasons that the players who are high on the NFL might become discounts in fantasy drafts, you might at least want to consider you know going at them as discounts, right? I mean I wasn't super high on Will Levis. But there was definitely points in the draft cycle last year where it felt like I was becoming higher than the market on Will Levis, even though I didn't love him as a prospect, even compared to a J.J. McCarthy, because it felt like people were just too out and were too out on reasons because he like cringed them out from his personality. And I understand what they're saying. I understand why I'm not disagreeing necessarily, agreeing or disagreeing with what bothered them, but whether that that thing that bothers them should affect their grades for a fancy game. I think that is a highly questionable, you know, practice right there. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why I do think I do like I I am talking about JJ McCarthy I think so much because I think he could become the best quarterback value in this draft given how some people talk about him because even though some people say some negative things about Caleb Williams, he's ultimately probably still going to end up being the number one most valuable player in a Superflex dynasty star or uh you know, rookie draft and maybe even like a first round pick in a startup league. On the subject of next week's show, and there may be two shows, I don't know yet, but the first should be an exploration into the pivot points of my current rookie rankings, where I am staying the same and where I'm going back and forth between a few players and the conversations between the different people in my head that are having with which way I should go and why. Uh, On top of that, I'm also going to spend some time this weekend looking through Keep Trade Cut and some other similar kind of value sources, looking at over and undervalued players. Now, to be clear, as it goes with a lot of other things on this show i don't know if i'll have a clear buy or sell take on every single player i evaluate but there are just certain intriguing conversations that immediately come to mind when looking over that rank like as someone who has a bit of ty j sharp the running back from the tennessee titans one thing i noticed just at a glance was that he was at running back 12 on keep trade cut a couple days ago i don't know what exactly i'm going to have to make of that but i'm sure going to talk about that one but anyway those are the two halves of the show next week most likely with just some rookie rankings and the NFL player analysis. Oh, and I will briefly touch on the combine, probably in about 60 seconds up front. And then just for the diehards, I'll have some real technical things that I look for that make very small differences in profiles at the very end. But I won't be spending too much time in the main part of the show talking about the combine because I don't think there's a ton of things to to really care about when it comes to the combine other than just to just pay attention to what other people are saying on that note i do hope that next week's podcast is available by easily searched functions and features on podcasting apps and in ways that you can leave likes and reviews so do look out for that and because ultimately next week will be a big potential week for this show i love you all and take care of yourselves goodbye